Hello and welcome to QPod, QIC's Investor Insights podcast series. I'm Craig Valenzuela, Managing Director for Global Business Development, and each week we are invite our listeners to take 10 and get the latest economic insights from our in-house economic team. And happy Friday to our Chief Economist, Dr. Matthew Peter. Good morning, Craig. Happy Friday to everybody. This week I had the pleasure of attending one of our clients' strategic partner forum, Matthew, a number of questions were raised during the Strategic Partner Forum, and I thought it could form the basis of a rapid-fire session today. So I'm going to hit you with seven questions in around seven minutes. Is that okay? Well, uh, pressure's on, Craig. No mucking around this morning. Let's hit it. Okay, let's get into it. So the first question, uh, the attendees questioned the relevance of MMT. Matthew, it's been a while since you and I have discussed MMT. Does it have a place in today's economic debate? Well, Craig, just by way of uh, explanation, MMT or modern monetary theories, it's known as when central banks finance government deficits through uh, purchases of government-issued debt. Now, the purpose of this is to keep interest rates low so public finances in particular don't implode and that allows the government unlimited ability to spend in order to stimulate a depressed economy. Now, Craig, you won't get central bankers ever admitting that MMT has a role to play. Uh, In fact, our uh, RBA governor, Phil Lowe, is famous for saying that MMT is not modern, it's not monetary, and it's not theory. But as the old saying goes, Craig, if it looks like MMT, quacks like MMT, and swims like MMT, well, you know the rest of it. Golden stuff there. (laughs) Well, listen, currently, Craig, the RBA is actually buying nine dollars out of every ten dollars of new debt issued by the federal government now by year end it will be buying nine dollars and 99 cents worth of every ten dollars of newly issued debt now is that mmt uh it smells like it doesn't it matthew question number two will i retire without seeing inflation again now i'm not going to get you know sort of lulled into any jokes here about the two ages that we both carry but what's your take Well, Craig, from my point of view, I've got plenty of time. But anyway, uh, look, to get on to the question, well, well, actually, Craig, look, you're seeing quite a bit of inflation now, aren't you? Australia's just recorded 3.8% annual inflation over the June quarter. US inflation rates currently running at over 5%. But I think what's meant by the, the sense of the question is, will we see a sustained inflation rate at or above the central bank's targets? And There, I think there's a good chance you will. What's changed? I mean, we've had a decade where central banks have struggled to meet their targets. So what's changed? And what's changed is central bank monetary policy. Now, apart from the sustained quantitative easing programs that are currently sopping up public debt, most central banks, including the RBA, they've changed their mandates to keep interest rates at the zero or lower bound until inflation exceeds their target. And in the US and Australia, they're also targeting extremely low unemployment rates to get wage growth up, which of course then feeds into inflation. So I think aggressive monetary settings will inevitably lift the rate of inflation in a sustained way. You're listening to Craig Balanswala and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the latest economic foresights shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, I want to get into a little bit more of that conversation around inflation and how permanent it is. The inflation debate continues to be everywhere. Even just this week, the Future Fund's Peter Costello weighed in with his views. 
are we seeing the positioning of a major structural change in our economic system going forward with relevance to inflation? Yeah, Craig, well, you're right. The current inflation spike is, is most likely temporary, but due to that shift in central bank policy, we are likely to see a structural shift to higher inflation. The challenge to central banks is whether they can control the higher level of, of inflation or whether it'll blow out of control. Well, if central banks are successful in convincing businesses, workers and investors that they'll anchor inflation at or just above their target over the medium to longer term, then the outcome, I think, will be very positive for the economy and financial markets as interest rates can remain low and adjust higher gradually, but in line with the improvement in the economy. Now, if not, we could see a blowout in inflation, which would weaken the economy, and we could potentially see a slide into the worst of all possible economic worlds, uh, stagflation. That's something that no current central banker has ever had to deal with and would represent a really significant structural shock to uh, not only the Australian economy, but the global economy. And one that I'd like to talk about either, Matthew. Now, you mentioned the case there for a stronger economy. However, this week, there was a lot of chatter about Shane Oliver's recent article, which is around a double-dip recession. So, Matthew, is that a risk? Well, it if you take it as a as a, the technical uh, definition of a recession, which is two consecutive quarters of falling economic activity as measured by GDP typically, then yes, it's possible. Look, the September quarter GDP has in it a baked-in drop uh, of uh, growth somewhere between two and a half and three percent because of the lockdowns, and and we'll have to see how quickly we roll out the vaccines and what that means for the rebound of growth uh, for the December quarter. Now, the June quarter outturn, which will be released by the ABS next Wednesday, in fact, uh, it's going to come in below trend, but at the moment, it looks likely to be positive. Now, at QIC, we're putting a probability of recession at a relatively high 30%, mainly due to the risks we think of uh, a negative potential negative outturn in the September and of course the December quarters. Uh, it's not our central case, but uh, it's, it's a probability. Shane Oliver thinks the risks are mainly in the June quarter and the September quarters. Now the market consensus is more sanguine than either Shane is or, or I am, and, and they place a probability of just 15% on recession. So let's let's hope the market's right. I'm assuming driven by the lockdown impacts there, Matthew. Question five: Just this week, the Bank of Korea raised interest rates, Matthew, to 0.75%, a 25 basis point increase, citing financial imbalances, despite Korea having 1,800 new cases of COVID per day, including the new Delta Plus strain. So it begs the question, are central banks making the right decisions? Well, Craig, don't, don't ask me to speak on behalf of the Bank of Korea, but you know, generally speaking, central banks have come in for a ton of criticism from inflation hawks for being dangerously loose with monetary policy on the one hand, to MMT proponents, harking back to that previous question, such as the shadow assistant treasurer, Dr. Andrew Lee, they're criticising the central bank for being too tight with monetary policy. Before the pandemic, central banks were being smashed by critics for undershooting their inflation targets. So who'd want to be a central banker, Craig? Certainly not me. But look, for me, their record since the pandemic started is very good. Nominal 
and real interest rates have been kept very low, supporting the economy and financial markets. Inflation expectations have been well anchored despite the spikes we've seen in current inflation in rate, inflation rates, I should say, Craig. And financial markets have, in the main, exhibited quite low volatility. So what else do you want your central bank to do? Well put. You're listening to Craig Valenzuela and QIC's Take 10 podcast, where our chief economist, Dr. Matthew Peter, is taking us through the current economic foresight shaping your investment outlook. Matthew, the other question raised at this client's forum was around managing the pandemic. With so much fiscal stimulus in circulation, it's a real challenge, as is the global imbalance of countries hitting that 80% threshold thought to be necessary for herd immunity to those who, of course, haven't. It's seeing some countries enable green international travel zones for those who are vaccinated. So, Matthew, will a COVID passport be a terms of trade advantage? As one attendee said, you can't pick fruit over Zoom. (laughs) Well, well, Craig, my gut reaction is to agree, but when I think about it, it can cut both ways. With COVID passports, people can leave the country as well as enter the country. Now, depending on how we cope with COVID in terms of uh, factors like lifestyle changes, health responses and labour market outcomes, in particular wage growth or the lack thereof, we could find that we indeed get our fruit picked, but at the expense of losing our best and brightest overseas. And in the final question, Matthew, and one for the ages, are we starting to sow the seeds through our responses to COVID to creating greater social disharmony through that division of wealth? Well, Craig, for me, the greatest driver of wealth inequality over the last decade since uh, the GFC, in fact, has been ultra-low interest rates. Now, low real interest rates have boosted the valuations of assets from equities to residential real estate, from exotic cars to artworks. It's favoured those already with large wealth portfolios, in other words, those who are already wealthy, and speculators who have been willing and able to uh, leverage their portfolios. Uh, On the other hand, it's undermined the wealth of those dependent on fixed income assets, uh, mainly our elderly and retired. Now, superannuation has meant that most workers can enjoy the boost to wealth this process has generated, but I think it's still skewed towards those who have already accumulated significant wealth and those willing to risk all uh, through leverage. Now, what history teaches us is that large divisions, growing divisions of wealth in societies that have any democratic uh, political mechanisms embedded in their their society, it always leads to social disharmony, be it the last decades of the Republic of Ancient Rome or indeed uh, the constitutional monarchy of uh, today's Australia. I suppose the additional argument here there, Matthew, is that some people can still work through this pandemic and others can't. uh, And that's also potentially a bigger dilemma than low interest rates. Well, the other the other division in, in wealth has been between those that uh, participate in the knowledge economy and those that don't. Now, in the pandemic, you're quite right, it's those that participate in the knowledge economy that are more likely to be able to work at home uh, and keep working, and those that don't, that are required to be physically at work, and they're, of course, not being able to. So you're quite right, Craig, there, there's another division that's happening there. Will it lead to disharmony? Yes, it will, for the same reason I said before. In any democratic society where people People can express their their discontent. Uh, one of the main drivers of disharmony is a, is a 
burgeoning or opening up of uh, wealth disparities. Well said. Thanks, Matthew. In summary, of the seven questions, I really did want to highlight three of the areas you touched on, Matthew. Despite all the conjecture and criticism, it does seem the world's central banks are performing pretty well, helping to manage a global pandemic, manufacturing shortages with huge amounts of money supply. And whilst the Bank of Korea shocked many this week with a blunt interest rate hike, has their lack of QE been the real issue? And with all crises, opportunities present themselves. Will countries with strong vaccination rates lead to a terms of trade and GDP windfalls through greater labour mobility? Is that the carrot Australia needs? And in conclusion, we cannot lose sight of the social impact of not only this pandemic, but the resulting economic decisions being made. And whilst interest rates have been the biggest driver of wealth inequality of late, does simply being able to work through the extended lockdowns drive an even bigger wedge going forward? It does make the case clear for high vaccination rates. I'm Craig Valenzuela for QIC's QPod. Thank you for listening and have a super weekend.